Good to be with you, IPC. We continue our studies of the Father's Ten Good Words, and we have arrived at the seventh good word from our good Father. Do not commit adultery. This is found, of course, in both Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, as well as in Deuteronomy 5. And of course, it will also be good to read uh, Matthew chapter 5 um, and the section there on adultery and divorce, beginning with verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. And once you've done that, uh, then we can begin together. Okay, so the seventh good word from our good father, do not commit adultery. Let's try to hear this good word by listening to the father as he teaches us about these four things. First, the heart's body, the heart's eyes, the father's eyes, and the son's body. The heart's body, the heart's eyes to start with. First of all, then, uh, the heart's body. What do I mean by this? Well, the heart has a body. (laughs) Everything we do with our bodies is an expression of our hearts. Body language, we call it. Our posture matters. If I preach to you like this, like this, or in any number of inappropriate ways, if I point at you like this, I don't have to say anything, but I'm communicating something with my body that's coming from my heart. And you would be like, what's wrong with this guy's heart? We have bodily rituals. And all these things express our hearts. I once heard a story of a young woman in her 20s who had grown up in a home with kind of a physically aggressive father. And as a result, as a young woman, she didn't have a whole lot of hope that she could grow up that she might be able to marry a man and expect from such a man anything other than aggressiveness. So she just figured she wasn't even going to get married, and that was that. Uh, But then one day she was given home a ride uh, from church by a couple in their church, and the gentleman was, well, he was gentle. And the way she tells it, the very way that he opened the car door and closed the car door For these two women, of course, that was a gesture or whatever, but it wasn't so much that he did it, but the the gentle way that he opened the door, and when the ladies got in, he closed and latched the door instead of just slamming it and walking to the other side as if he didn't care. And it was in that moment, just strange little things like this that make a difference for people. She realized maybe a marriage doesn't have to be full of fear. Maybe a marriage can be a thing of peace because the heart has a body. And that's why, according to this seventh good word, we have to be very aware of what we're doing with our bodies. As you read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this bizarre thing. He says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to have no hand then have your whole body be lost. And Jesus knows, of course, that our hands don't cause us in some kind of A plus B way to sin. What causes us to sin? Well, our hearts do. And some scholars are telling us that this is a backward kind of riddle way for Jesus to say, if your heart causes you to sin, cut it off. 
throw it out. And the ridiculous thing about that, of course, is if you do that, you're dead. You can't live without your heart. And that is the point. We do sin uh, with our bodies. But the body, when it does good or when it does evil, is always serving at the pleasure of the heart. And because the heart has a body, therefore God our Father regulates what his image bearers are meant to do with their bodies. It's only natural that he would. He's made us in his image. And so he has the right and authority to say things like, if you violently touch someone sexually, if you romantically touch someone else's spouse, if your body says, I love you to someone sexually, but you haven't committed yourself to them, If you use and you discard the bodies of other people when you use pornography, if your body language says these kinds of things, then your body language is not telling the truth about who I am. You're bearing my image and I'm faithful. So don't say that I'm faithless and fickle through your body language. But he says, on the contrary, If you hug and you kiss and you shake hands or whatever it is we'll be allowed to do with each other after coronavirus, if you do these kinds of things in a way that communicates brotherly, sisterly warmth uh, to others that are made in my image, if you happen to be married and in the covenant of marriage, you give and you serve with tenderness and sexual fidelity to one another, then you will be saying something about me again and you'll be saying something good and true and beautiful about me with your body language. Namely, you'll be saying faithfulness and loving kindness about me. But look, even though the good father regulates bodily image bearing, that doesn't mean that the father is embarrassed somehow about bodies and sexuality. In fact, This is kind of stunning, but if you look at the first couple pages of our Bibles, the very first time that a human being speaks in the Bible, what comes out of that human being's mouth? It's actually, the scholars tell us, an erotic love poem. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he says about the woman. Right in the very center of our Bibles, next to the Psalms, is a long, multi-chapter erotic love poem, the Song of Songs. And I think the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden is wonderful because it actually kind of expresses the two ways that we have historically, across cultures, gotten ourselves into marriages when that happens. How did marriages happen? Either it's an arranged marriage, arranged by mom and dad, or it's, you know, some version of love at first sight or romance full of physical attraction. But in this first marriage between Adam and Eve, it is both of these things. It's an arranged marriage, arranged by a good father, and it's also love at first sight, full of physical attraction that's expressed in this poem that comes out of Adam's mouth, first human words. And so this means that the seventh good word is teaching us our marriages, ideally, if we're married, should have all of the commitment and the sobriety of an arranged marriage, because it is arranged by our Father, but our marriages are also meant to partake in all of the sensual delight of the erotic poems that are right in the middle of our Bible and right at the beginning as well. 
In Proverbs chapter 5, the father tells his adult son, he says, Son, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so if we're married, the implication seems to be we have to work intentionally for the strength and the romance in our marriage. We can't wait for romance and sparks to come along. And in fact, we're probably most vulnerable if we're playing a waiting game. If we wait around, we'll get lazy and bored and we'll end up doing exactly what the seventh word forbids, taking somebody else's body for cheap, uncommitted pleasures. So the call of the seventh good word is to work on your heart by practicing image-bearing holiness through what you do with your image-bearing body, and especially in the context of sexuality and marriage. So that's the heart's body. Secondly, we need to talk about the heart's eyes. I've been really fascinated by the human eye lately. Maybe I missed my calling to be like an eye doctor or something. The human eye is the most expressive part of the face. If I spent my entire sermon looking down here not at you, you wouldn't feel very connected with me. But if I express myself to you, <laughs> then, then you know that I'm with you and you care about me and you're looking back at me. This is one of the awkward things is I've only got Karen's eyes looking through a camera at me right now. Oh, well, I trust that you're watching. Um, the eyes are the most expressive part of the face. Looking into the eyes is extremely personal. It can even be awkward if, you get, if someone catches you doing it, right? Looking... Um, Use it, you use your eyes as the central communication channel of your body. When you're talking to me, I hope that you're not looking at my mouth or my hair or my toes. I would think that you were weird, right? But you're looking instead at my eyes. But at the center of the eye, which is the center of the face and the center of the communication that takes place bodily, what is there in the center of the eye? This is crazy. There's actually a hole there. It's an absence. There's nothing there in a sense, but a hole. The gaze of the eyes is mysterious because I can't make physical contact with you through my eyes. And when you look in my eyes, you're not touching anything. You're not even seeing anything if you look right in the middle. But the gaze of the eyes is, after all, the place to look if you want to know whether I want to bless you or curse you, whether I want to give or whether I'm here to take from you, whether I'm here to learn or here to lecture you, whether I'm here to help or whether I'm here to harm you. So the eyes can't touch, but man, do they reach out with the heart, don't they, for good or for ill, and they do so as powerfully and as revealingly in many ways as the hands do. And by the way, if you don't think that the heart and the eyes and the hands are all connected to one another, then just look at the United States of America in the past two weeks, right? What is the cry after all, if you're listening, uh, of the black American community? It is people, the violence of your hands is an expression of the gaze that we see in your eyes when you look at us. The gaze of your eyes is a window into the contempt in your heart, and we see it. So what do we have to do, they're saying, to get you to stop 
killing us with your hands to stop gazing at us this way with your eyes. In other words, what will you do? When will finally your heart change toward us? The eyes and the hands and the heart are connected intimately. And as we saw last week, Jesus is clear not just about the murder of the hands and the murder and contempt of the heart, but he's also clear here in Matthew 5 about the way that sexual assault and adultery of the hands are connected to the lust of the heart. No one takes someone else's spouse someone else's daughter or son, someone else made in God's image and uses them for selfish sexual purposes with their hands without first using that image bearer with their eyes. And just like we heard the son say last week that you can't murder with your heart, um, that you can rather murder with your heart, well, he says here that you can also commit sexual sin with your heart's eyes. The heart doesn't just have a body, but has eyes. And you can tell a lot about a person by the gaze of their heart's eyes. This might start to sound a little bit depressing. And actually, um, you know, maybe, maybe your emotions are running high because you've been in these situations either as the perpetrator or as the victim Uh, And it could be intense and severe, or it could be mild, but all of us have been in situations where we've been on one or both ends of this kind of harm from the heart and from the eyes and from the body. So we need now to turn and we need to look at the Father's eyes. Because if the heart has eyes, and if all of our eyes are capable and guilty of taking instead of giving, of cursing instead of blessing, of using instead of uh, uh, using and abusing instead of praising and affirming, whose eyes are we going to look to? Whose eyes are safe to look at? Are there a pair of eyes that have not been compromised by the violence and objectification of human eye-level lust? Well, thank God the Father's own eyes are different. The Father's eyes are holy. The good Father's eyes, to say they're holy, means that they are completely reserved for the good purposes of the good Father's heart, because his eyes and his heart are connected intimately as well. The American author Flannery O'Connor said this, said, for the writer of stories, and she was one, everything has its testing point in the eye. And the eye is an organ that eventually involves the whole personality and as much of the world as can be gotten into it. The eye, she says, finally, involves judgment. Well, God, our good father, is a writer like Flannery O'Connor, but a writer not of fiction, but of a true story, the story of the whole creation and the story of women and men and girls and boys. And his eyes are more perceptive than the most carefully observant storyteller's eyes. Details, resonances, the father's eyes take all of this in. His eyes are the center of his whole personality, and he takes the entire world into his experience through his searching eyes. And, yes, he judges as well, because he sees things truly, he evaluates things truly. 
He is the eyewitness of everything. And get this, the Father alone, because his eyes are holy, the Father alone can be judge without being judgmental. The Father alone sees all things truly and interprets all things with a true heart. And you might think this is incredibly bad news for us because that means he knows what's going on in our hearts, not just our eyes and with our bodies, but something surprising happens when we dare to look into the eyes of our good father, this perfect all-seeing judge. Because in the scriptures, our good father, Genesis chapter one, makes things, looks at them, judges them, and declares them good. Our good father makes women and men as image bearers, and he sees that these things above all are very good, and he says so. When our hearts in Adam and Eve first doubted God's fatherly goodness, we looked at the forbidden tree, we judged it, we did it independently of God's own fatherly wisdom and rule, and we said, in effect, my body, my desires, my choice, I'm taking the fruit, and we joined our bodies with the fruit. We took it into our bodies. The bodies, or rather the fruit that our father told us would kill our bodies and wreck our relationships as well. If you like, we lusted with our hearts and then with our eyes and then with our bodies until we gave our bodies for pleasure and we did so right in front of God's eyes. But when the good father saw with perfect eyes what we had done, he came looking for us. He knew where Adam and Eve were, but the Bible says he went looking for them. It said, Adam, Eve, where are you? And then when he saw their shame, their fig leaves covering their bodies, resulting from what they did with their bodies, what did he do? But he covered their bodies with animal skins to mitigate the shame that they knew in body and in heart and in eyes. And then the father in the very next breath, it seems, makes this great promise in Genesis 3.15. And he promises there for the first time to win us back, to win hearts and eyes and bodies back through the faithful heart and eye and body of his only son, ultimately, given to us. And all this is just to say that the father, who can see with a pure heart and perfect eyes, has three things. One, seen and judged our lust and our adulterous eyes correctly. Two, has spoken truly and justly in condemning what we have done with our eyes of lust. And three, from those very same eyes that saw and judged, he looks in compassion, mercy, and kindness upon us. For God so looked at the world through his eyes and saw that it was good and saw also that we had become bad at loving it and loving one another, and so loved the world that instead of moving from judgment to condemnation, the good father does something different, and he moves from honest, true, just judgment to perfect mercy in Jesus, his only son. Friends, in this way, the son is the father's eyes. You want to make eye contact with God your Father? Look into the eyes of Jesus because the Son, Jesus, judges all things with the Father's eyes but then looks with the Father's eyes of compassion despite what we have been and what we have done. 
So there's the Father's eyes. And we've already gotten into it, but the last thing to say here is we need to look at the Son's body. Because the Son expresses the Father's eyes and heart through his body. Though you and I have been unfaithful from the heart, with the eyes, and out through our bodies, though you and I are ashamed of what we've done, either openly or in secret, with body and eyes and heart, though your and my sins are many, well, Jesus' mercy in his body is more. Jesus' mercy is more. When you and I are baptized, when the water comes upon us, it washes over our bodies. When we commune with bread and wine, we take things into our body. And this is all a picture of showing us that when we are united to the crucified and resurrected and glorified body of Jesus, God's true son, when we are joined to his body, the church, which he calls his dear bride, well, then we can begin to sense, can't we, with our bodies and see with our eyes and know with our hearts the reality of the Father's heart. So much did he love us that he sent his only son to welcome us with open arms, with tender eyes, and with a soft and warm heart back into his own heart. Your heart, eyes, body, all of who you are, redeemed and restored in Jesus and destined, after all, for the splendor of holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about this and really give it thought, when I hear the seventh good word like this from our good Father, when I see the seventh good word acted out in the words, in the eyes, in the body of the Father's true Son, Jesus, I'm left wanting to say something like this from the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God my Father and to his true Son, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, to echo Paul, I will honor my good Father and my faithful Savior in my body and with my eyes as an expression of my whole heart. That's a heck of a commitment to make. <laughs> There's nothing left of me left to commit if I make that commitment for real. So all that's left to say is, well, Pentecost was last week and the Holy Spirit dwells within me. So help me God by your Holy Spirit to keep these commitments because you've been faithful first to me even when I was unfaithful. May we keep these commitments to our faithful Savior, Jesus, for Jesus' own sake. Amen.